Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you for checking in. This week we will, Bezrat Hashem, have two episodes for you. I also have six musical releases coming out. A few of them already have been out, so check out the links in the show notes. One of them is a song about Shefran Pua, another one about Rivka, another one is called Tfilat Haderach, so keep tuning in. I hope you enjoy, and let's get on with the episode. Today, it is an honor and pleasure to introduce my father once again on this podcast. Since his bio has been updated, I will share a little bit about him for those of you listening to him for the first time. Rabbi Pinchas Goldschmidt is a Swiss-born rabbi, scholar, and Jewish community leader. He was the chief rabbi of Moscow in Russia from 1993 until 2022, serving at the Moscow Choral Synagogue. He also founded and has headed the Moscow Rabbinical Court of the Commonwealth of Independent States since 1989. From 2011, he has served as president of the Conference of European Rabbis, which unites over 700 communal rabbis. In the aftermath of increased sociopolitical repression within Russia in 2022, within the context of the Russo-Ukrainian War, Goldschmidt gained international media attention for his recommendation that all Jews living in Russia leave the country for their own safety and security. He would later become the first rabbi to be listed as a foreign agent by Russia as a result of his opposition to war. Given his role in speaking for the benefit of the Jewish community, Goldschmidt has stated that he has been a magnet for personal threats of violence by anti-Semitic extremists. Today we talk about politics, religion, is there Jewish leadership, and what should they be doing? What can we learn from our Jewish history? So stay tuned. Thank you. And enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Francisca Show. It's such an honor to be speaking with you. I am starstruck. I was waiting to say this on my show. So thank you for joining us today. Freddie, the honor and the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. So we are living in biblical times, in big political and significant moments in Jewish history. And personally, you've always lived your life, you and mommy, seeing Jewish history and your responsibility in it very seriously. Now, I think the rest of the nation has joined you in that, seeing how it's very relevant and what happens to Jewish people happens in every or every other generation. We're reminded that we're Jews. So here we are, we're speaking to somebody who's an expert and who's dedicated their entire lives to initiatives and this kind of work. Your personal beliefs and opinions and we'll definitely give, spend time on your position as a rabbi and Jewish leader, but I'd like to start from a political point, and I'd like to hear how may have your political views and beliefs shifted since October 7th? I don't know if my beliefs have shifted, but uh, the world has shifted. And since the world has shifted, so the reality and the way you perceive reality has also ch shifted. And I think if I'm talking now from the point of view of a Jew who lives outside of Israel, for many Jews, what has happened on Simchas Torah in, in, in Israel 
was like uh, your insurance policy, your health insurance and your life insurance were taken away from you. Because many Jews outside of Israel, even though they didn't move to Israel, they look at Israel as their insurance policy. That when push comes to shove, when we have to leave our countries and our communities because of rising anti-Semitism, oh, there's always one place we can go, one place we can call home, one place which is safe. And this feeling was destroyed on Sapastor. So what is happening is that in many communities, Jews were, till now, busy with many different projects and ideas and had different types of criticism of what is happening in the community or in Israel, we were going back to mere survival. In Israel, they're using the phrase, nilchamim alabayt. Fighting for our home. We're fighting to save our home, which means that's, in essence, what we're doing now. Everything else is secondary. So you did mention something when we were talking on Shabbos, how I'm living in the U.S., should I be thinking about moving to Israel? And then, was it you who said that? The attack happened in Israel, not outside of Israel. So, Yes, that's also a, a very interesting phenomenon. When there were attacks against Jews in France but 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and in Toulouse against the Jewish school, the Charlie Hebdo in Paris, there was a huge movement of Aliyah of Jews of France to Israel. Now, the interesting thing is that during their move to Israel, Israel was under the attack of rockets from Gaza, and uh, French Jews were signing contracts on buying homes in Israel while there were sirens outside and rockets overhead. And if you look at just bare statistics, where statistically is it more dangerous for somebody? Is it in Israel or in France for a Jew? Statistically, it's Israel. So why are Jews moving from France to Israel? It doesn't make sense. So I think there's a, the answer to it is, is, is very simple. Jews want to be able to fight back if they're being attacked. When we're outside of Israel, we're being protected by police, we're protected by the national security services. We do not protect ourselves. Now, maybe today we are protecting ourselves already, you know, learning how to shoot and we're protecting our shuls. In Israel, we are actually we're fighting back. And I think that's a very important feeling which a lot of Jews want to have, and that's the reason they're moving to Israel, even today. In 2023. I appreciate that explanation. You have spent a lot of your life's work wearing the hat of the president of the Conference of European Rabbis as someone who aligned themselves with the Muslim community in order to fight legislation in many European countries that were designed to make Muslims uncomfortable and not keep migrating into their countries. For example, Shrita, Brismila, women being able to wear burqas, freedom of dress expression. Now that we are on the side of Muslims being our bigger enemy than secularization or anti-Muslim law, are you shifting your alliance? Or are you considering that in the concept of enemy of our enemy is our friend? First of all, when you deal in politics, 
you always look at the issues and you look who can support your issues. So on certain issues, we have allies. Some other issues, we don't have allies. So it is an alliance by issues. But having said that, it is very important to note that to say that all the Muslims are our enemies is wrong. Same way to say, if we say all the Christians are our friends, is also wrong. I'll give you two examples. Azerbaijan, a Muslim country, openly supported Israel and condemned the massacre of Hamas. And so did the, the Emirates. And all those Gulf countries, the Emirates and uh, Bahrain, they were extremely critical of the Palestinians and Hamas. So to put all the Muslims uh, under one hood of our enemies is wrong. We have support outside of Israel. from We have friends. We have people who are less friendly. People who we thought that... Uh, we're supposed to be friendly, became our biggest enemies. Let's look at uh, Ireland. Ireland is part of the European Union, and they've been making one disgusting statement after another. And definitely the statements of uh, Azerbaijan and of the Emirates were much, much friendlier than the statements from, from Ireland. I hear your point of view, but the people who are emigrating to the European countries seem to be coming from countries that are not our friends, so to speak. What we have seen in, um, in Europe the line, during the last two months, since the beginning of the war, we have seen that those organizations aligned with extremists were demonstrating for Hamas. And then you had uh, a very large, the largest component of the Muslim community who just kept quiet. They didn't, didn't say a word. Um, speaking about the leaders of the great mosques of Paris, uh, speaking about the union of DTIB in Germany, which unites six million Turkish Muslims who live in Germany, and uh, they're the being financed by Erdogan in Turkey. We have a big problem. Uh, we, we created a council of imams and rabbis years ago to work together on issues of, of mutual interest, and the imams originally published a condemnation of Hamas. We put it on our website, the Conference of European Rabbis, and a day later they asked us to take it down because they were under pressure. And this, but the fact that the Muslims, there were very, very few Muslim organizations in Europe ready to speak out against this massacre shows to what extent we have a problem. But this is also backfiring at them. Because what is happening, there's a very strong movement in Europe, which till now was identified with the radical right, with extreme right, which said we have to get rid of the Muslims who live in Europe, about 40 million Muslims in Europe. And, but the radical right was never part of leading a government. And now, last week, and I wrote a month ago in an op-ed in Germany that this is gonna, what's going to happen. Many citizens in Europe will be fed up and say, we want to make sure that Europe does not become a second Gaza or a second Beirut. And uh, the extreme right, Geert Wilders, who is openly supportive of Israel, won the elections in Holland, got twice as many votes as the other party. 
So we see that there's going to be a very big backlash against the silence, the Muslim silence in Europe. We definitely have a problem. Could be that also tomorrow France, in France there was a huge demonstration in Paris two weeks ago against anti-Semitism. You know who took part in this demonstration? Marine Le Pen, the leader of the extreme right in France. Her father, Marie Le Pen, was an open anti-Semite who said that uh, he would rather send all the Jews to Auschwitz. And she inherited him, and she came to this demonstration against anti-Semitism. So we have here a monumental shift in European politics as a response And this is what I'm saying. The world after October 7th is a different world than before. The far right white supremacy is recognizing the threat of Islamic extremism. It definitely sees Islam as its main enemy and the Muslims living in Europe. They don't like Jews either. However, they need the Jews for one thing, for a kosher temple, for legitimacy, to say they're not Nazis. Until now, the Jews were very reluctant to give the support to the extreme right because they were racist. Some of their parties were founded by SS officers, like in uh, Austria. The party was founded by an SS officer. But what is happening with the shift today in Europe and seeing that today the great menace and danger comes from radical Islam, from Hamas, from ISIS, there might be a shift in this as well. So does that mean Jews are going to be safer in those countries where their parties win? I don't know if they're going to be safer because at the end of the day, those parties want to dismantle the European Union and they want to create those uh, nation states to beforehand and they're nationalists and uh, I don't trust their philo-Semitism. So we have to be very careful and uh, we, we know usually one thing, that Jews feel themselves well, usually in, in a democratic setting, in a democracy, where there's freedom. Where there's no freedom, Jews don't feel themselves comfortable. Well, Germany was a democracy that led to Nazi Germany. Right. Uh, Hamas was elected democratically in, in Gaza. Democracy is not a perfect system. Churchill used to say that that of all bad systems of government, democracy is the least bad system. It's not a good system. So yesterday you went to D.C., Washington, D.C., and I know you're involved in America's relationship in anti-Semitism and the verdict of Jews all over the world. So talk to me about some of the conversations you've had or goals you have. A lot of what we discussed uh, just now together on this podcast, uh, was discussed yesterday when I met also the head uh, of the Foreign Relations Committee of the Senate, uh, Senator Ben Cardin, and members of the House, as well as Professor Deborah Lipstadt, the ambassador, the envoy combating anti-Semitism, as well as we had a meeting in, in the White House with the National Security Council. So many of those issues came up, as well as uh, we discussed this in the, all in the context of another war, which we almost f- forgotten. Russia and Ukraine. The Russian-Ukrainian war. So we don't also have to forget that the 7th of October, Simchas Torah in Israel, this was the birthday of Putin. And uh, the Russian-Iranian axis 
also plays a large role in this whole story. Which is? Which is the, the fact that uh, Russia is becoming much closer to the worst enemies of Israel. And Russia is, is getting arms from Iran. They just signed another deal. They just met the senior leadership from Hamas. Putin did not condemn the massacre on Semchastora. And right a week afterwards, we had a pogrom in Dagestan and southern Russia. So these things don't happen in a vacuum. They are all tied to each other. They're all uh, interconnected. I don't want to sound cynical, but does anything happen from those meetings with the senators? And I'm speaking to people who make policy, who advise the president and the secretary of state and senators and uh, congressmen. Uh, today, the United States of America is maybe not the only superpower, but the greatest superpower. And uh, could you imagine what the Middle East would look like today without the United States? So the United States is playing a central role in everything which is happening now. And we're speaking to the people who make policy. I know you're going after this trip to teach a highly intensive course over six days about religion and politics. Tell us where it's going to be. Who do you think is going to attend this course? Why is this university do, offering this course? What's your goal? And what are you going to cover there? I've been spending a lot of time in Germany in the last uh, few months. We moved uh, the headquarters of the Conference of European Rabbis from London to Munich. And, uh, you know, I also took uh, an ad advisory position in the community of Dusseldorf in Germany, where I'm uh, one weekend uh, a month. And I'm telling you why I think it's very important, because it is one thing to be the president of the Council of European Rabbis and we speak to, that's the 40 chief rabbis and 700 rabbis. At the end of the day, you want to know what people think Balabatim or living communities, normal Jews, members of communities, what do they think? What are, what are they afraid of? What are their hopes? How can we help them? And by being there, and as long as I was uh, the Rove of Moscow, so I was in touch with a lot of those uh, congregants and uh, people uh, from the community. And uh, I've been lacking this since I left Moscow. So here, I, I'm meeting again people, and uh, I would say the, the people themselves. And um, this was also one of the reasons why I decided that I'm going to make a special seminar where I'll be able to meet not our people, but uh, the youth of tomorrow, the leaders of tomorrow, the TUM in Munich is, has a school of, of political science. It's the best university inside the European Union. And they have most of the students are international students. The language is English, not German. Seeing what is happening today in the universities, in the campuses throughout the United States, which they become, became enemy territory which uh, controlled by, by Hamas, by Qatar, and by uh, all other great uh, uh, proponents of democracy and freedom. I think it is important for me to have the ability, at least for a few days a year, to engage in dialogue with those people who are going to be the leaders of the world, the next generation, and to understand where they're coming from, what they're saying, 
and to see if what I'm telling them has an impact. Can I ask who invited who? Did you pitch yourself or did you get invited? It was a joint project of the Jewish community of, of Munich. Uh, they thought it, it would be very beneficial for the community as well as for the city. Good luck with that, by the way. Thanks. I hope you're, this reaps great fruit. I'd like to move on into your other hat as a Jewish leader, as somebody who recognizes challenges, issues, opportunities in our nation, within our people, and you see things globally. Is there leadership, first of all? Do you think there is currently sufficient leadership? And how are things shifting? Or how would you like things to be? I would like to mention that the Maharal, dwells in this. Many of his forum, Maral has been extraordinary in explaining to us the deeper meaning of Divri Chazal and Midrashim to understand the deeper meaning, just not the super, superficial meaning. And I would like to just to mentioned there is the famous Gemara of Agados Achorban, which everyone knows, it's the story of Kamtsam Bakamtsam. What most people don't know, that this story is one of three stories mentioned there in the Gemara of uh, the inner reason or the spiritual reason for the destruction of of Yerushalayim, which is Kamsa by Kamsa. And then you had the city of Tur Malka, and then you had the city of Beta. The Gemara brings two other stories, why those two other cities were destroyed. And uh, the story of Tur Malka was that they had a custom that uh, when there was a newly wet couple, they used to take a chicken and a rooster to walk in front of the newly wet couple when they walked home. Uh, a few Roman soldiers passed by. They were most probably hungry. They didn't have lunch. There was no McDonald's. So they took these chickens away, and the citizens of Turmalka got so upset that they went and they killed those Roman soldiers the Roman Caesar was told that the revolt of the Judean has started against the Romans. Another story, the third story, the similar story of Betar, that they had the minhag of uh, planting a tree when a child was born. And when a child got married, they took the wood of the street to build, to build the chuppah for this child. The same story, a princess came on a carriage, the carriage broke down, and the soldiers took the trees down to fix the carriage, and the local citizens of Beta got upset, and they went and they killed those soldiers, maybe also the princess, and uh, this was the start. Uh, the Romans took this as a sign that uh, Judeans have revolted against them. And this was the Huben, uh, this, uh, this, this, uh, this was the Huben, of Baisheni, which started in Yerushalayim, then later with Beitar. What do Chazal want to tell us with these stories? That we're responsible and we provoked our own destruction. 
Yes, but what's more than that? What 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 is the story of this this carriage breaking down and taking those uh, and killing those Roman soldiers who who took the wood of those uh, of those trees without asking permission? What what do these stories are trying to tell us? I think it is very simple. The Jews of Beta or Tumalka, they were extremely upset that something like this was done against them. Against, it's not a mitzvah derisive to have chickens walking in front of a chosen color. We don't do it today. It's not even a mitzvah derban. I don't think it's mentioned in Shukhanor. So the minak, like the minak to put, put on a strammel, like to eat shont on Shabbos. You know, it's a minak. An outsider came and insulted you. Now, the leaders of the city of Beta, I don't know if they were Zavada Rabbanim or anything else, they decide, okay, we, we have to do something about it. Let's go and kill those soldiers. Did they think for a moment, uh, did they know what, uh, how big the Roman Empire is? How many soldiers does the Roman Empire have? What is going to be the impact of such an act by the Roman Empire against the Jewish community in in, in Ertesor, did they think for this for a moment? Or did they look very myopically at their own city? Okay, city of Betar, we want to make sure that nobody's going to tell us not to wear white socks on Shabbos anymore, or not to wear Strymon anymore. And we have to make sure that, uh, that everybody gets the, gets the message that uh, don't touch us. And by the way, if, when we're go- looking also at the first story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, and uh, the head of the Sanhedrin at that time was Zachariah ben Afkulas. Chazal said that he destroyed our base of Mikdosh. He said that Bakansa coming with a, with a carbon, with a sacrifice, uh, which has an infringement and cannot be brought as a sacrifice according to Allah. So he said, okay, if we, if we are going to bring it, so people are going to say that we changed Allah. And if we're going to kill the person, they're going to say a person who, who makes uh, an infringement on a sacrifice uh, deserves a death penalty. Of course, Zachariah ben Afkulas was right, that these were matter of concerns. But Zachariah ben Afkulas didn't think for a moment about the larger picture, the larger picture that we have a Roman emperor over there in Jerusalem, who just sent an emissary with a sacrifice, and what will be the result of insulting this Roman emperor and the Roman empire. So if we're talking about a Jewish leadership today, I think that this is the core problem we have today. This was also the core problem we had during the last year in Israel when I call it the state of Tel Aviv was fighting the state of, of Yerushalayim. They were fighting over the future of the state of Israel. In, uh, in Tel Aviv, you had the seculars, you had the those people who created the startup nation, created, created the wealth of Israel today, who want to keep Israel as secular as it was when the, uh, when the state was founded. And in Yushalayim, you had uh, the religious contingent who want to, uh, since this religious contingent is much bigger than it used to be, and it's today the religious with the Haredim together with the with the Masorati, which means the traditional Jews, Traditional Jews, uh, by definition, Jews who who keep mitzvahs who are, which are easy to keep, and they don't keep the mitzvahs which are difficult to keep. So uh, this contingent wanted to ha- make Israel in a much more 
uh, I would say, religious uh, country. And they were fighting, but each one was only looking at their own, okay, this, we are right, we, this is what we want to do. And they said, we are right. And they sent, uh, each side sent uh, people to demonstrate, uh, the, uh, the Tel Avivians sent people to demonstrate in Yerushalayim. The Yerushalayimians sent people to demonstrate in Tel Aviv. But everyone forgot that, hello, Israel is not Switzerland, where one side of Switzerland is Liechtenstein and the other side of Switzerland is France. Israel is, a, is in a very bad neighborhood. On one side, we have Hezbollah. On the other side, we have Hamas. And then we have Lebanon. Then we have Syria, which is a wonderful, beautiful, prospering country. And if we're not going to keep together, if we're not going to show the Goyim that we are fighting each other and we show weakness, then uh, what has happened, unfortunately, would happen. So this is, I think, is the main message today in terms of when we talk about Jewish leadership today, our communities are very insular. When I speak our communities, I'm not saying only about uh, the religious communities. I think every community, since we have today social media, uh, which creates ecosystems, ecosystems meaning that I only want to hear what my friends or people who think like me are saying. And the uh, wider voices in the world, I don't hear those voices. And what uh, and things are being said without checking it, if it's really true or it's not true, it's only partially true, and the, uh, and the content is not being edited. So we're providing those insular communities like Betar, like Turmalka, and we do, we're taking decisions not based on reality, but only based on our myopic perceptions. And this brings a home. And this brings a home. And this brought a home 2,000 years ago. And this brought a small home now two months ago. So my call to, to, for the Jewish leaders today, whether rabbinical leaders or shishivas or rabbis or, or communal rabbis or lay leaders, whatever. So open your eyes. Open your eyes. Make sure that when you take a decision, that you take into consideration not only local considerations of your own community, what will this person say, what will that person say, how will this person perceive, but also understand the global and political ramifications of your decision. Do you feel like you're talking into an echo chamber here because those people aren't going to be listening to this podcast? How can they possibly get this message or internalize it like, you're, like this applies to them? I think that what we have seen in the last two months, uh, it has been a Tzorol Yaakov. It has been a tremendous time of, of great sorrow and anguish. And with all the young people who have been buried, all those people who have been taken hostages, the lack of security. And what we have seen in Israel is that everything collapsed. The state collapsed. The army collapsed. The intelligence services collapsed. But what saved the day? The people. The people. The people came forward. People came forward. And uh, the volunteers who, uh, who took arms and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, Israel is a small country. In Shul, where Daven and Yeshuan, so behind me, uh, sits the father-in-law of the chief of staff of the Israeli army. Three seats away from me sits a guy who lost just a husband of his granddaughter 
or volunteer to go from Be'er Sheva to, to, to save people in those kibbutzim when you heard something was going on. But it was the people who really saved the day. Um, your sister-in-law, Mali, she was cooking the first day, she was cooking in, in her small kitchen in Yerushalayim, 600 meals for soldiers because the army wasn't organized. And she wanted to make sure that the soldiers are not going to go hungry into, into Gaza. So here also, and there's not another thing which has been a, benefi- a beneficial outcome of this tragedy, has been the tremendous achtos. The tremendous achtos of, of people from all different walks of life in Israel, people who in usual circumstances would never talk to each other, would never know that, that they exist. People from Kibbutzim and from Haredi communities. And for understanding this tragedy showed us once that we are one, that Klal soil, our fate depends on each other. And when we are divided, we are hurting ourselves, and we are putting into question our continuity. So we have to learn from this. And when leaders take decisions, and we're talking about political decisions, in what what to participate in, what not to participate in, they shouldn't do it like uh, Zahaya ben Afkulas and Look only, okay, what is Jew 1 going to say? Or what is Jew 2 going to say? We have to say, this is, we have to see what is, are going to be the ramifications from those people who hate us, who want to kill us, who want to destroy us. And uh, I know that uh, this goes against the grain of Zionism. Ben-Gurion, when he created the State of Israel, he, he said... It's not important what the Goyim say, it's important what the Jews do. Of course, we have to keep a balance. We don't always have to take into consideration public opinion of those people who don't like us. However, even Ben Goyon himself, having said that, having coined this phrase, he was very much aware and concerned with the support he got in the United States, without the support of the United States, Israel would have never come into existence and would have never survived the first years. So it is always about keeping the balance. It's about being rational and uh, and making sure that we are taking the right decision based in Dayan you can only take decisions on the facts in front of you. But you have to know, you have to make sure that you have all the facts. If you don't have the, all the facts, your decisions are biased. Do you think there will be a shift with Haredim joining the army? According to public polls, there's, there's been a shift in Israel and the Haredi public, which has become much more appreciative of the state, of the army. And because... At the end of the day, if there is no security, if there's no state of Israel, there is also not going to be the Olam in Israel, and the Olam HaSidus is also not going to survive. So the survival of the state of Israel and the Olam and the Olam HaSidus are totally dependent on each other. But will it come from the people who are rebelling, and then it might become accepted in... 
5, 10, 20 years? Where is it going to come from the leadership? We're learning now the Pashius Torah of uh, our Ovos and Maisa Ovos, Simon Lebonim. We see that the Pasha with Yitzchak and Rivka and Esau and Yaakov. So what Rivka and Yaakov saw, Yitzchak didn't see. So it is always a process, but you don't go against Yitzchak. You, you don't go against uh, the Tzaddik, the Novi. You don't go against him. But uh, this is the work you have to do to to teach, to educate, and to make sure that uh, the right decisions are being taken. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was very educational. I know I've been calling you to give me chazak, so hopefully this gives chazak to our audience today. Anyway, I'm very happy to have had this opportunity to be on, on your famous podcast. I, I hear a lot of great, thing, great things about it. I'm looking forward to get some feedback. Yes, we definitely like hearing feedback. So thank you. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. This episode was recorded over a week ago. I hope you picked up on that. And stay tuned for another episode. I hope you are enjoying Hanukkah and appreciating having some light in all this darkness out here. Stay safe, be kind, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.